what I keep telling people is we're all going to be disabled someday. Just some of us beat you to it. So when you're designing for someone like me today, we're actually designing and building for your future self. That was the voice of David Dame, my guest this week on the Perspectives podcast. David is the director of accessibility at Microsoft, and I mean the whole company, not just here in Canada. Before that, David worked at Scotiabank as global head and vice president of Enterprise Agile, where he was also the executive sponsor of the Disability Employee Resource Group. He's an accomplished technology executive with fascinating ideas about technology, disability, leadership, and how workplaces can bring out the best in all their people. David, welcome to Perspectives. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me today. David, I'd like you to tell, tell us a little bit about how you got to this point in your career, working for one of the most well-known companies in the world. Um, going back to when you started out, I'm picturing a smart and ambitious young man who also happened to have cerebral palsy. What kind of career challenges did you face in, in those early days? Well, it was funny. In my last year of high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, business or technology, because I was good in either. My dad came down the stairs and said, David, let's be honest, with you being in a wheelchair, you're not going to be a fireman, police officer, or a construction worker. But you know what else you're not going to be? Living under my roof for free the rest of your life. So I chose technology, which was great. Um, and, you know, uh, luckily, um, technology was becoming the level set for me, where most kids could write or type and use liquid paper. I was using computers at an early age to really create the world through computers that didn't exist for me in physical architecture. So I really seen the computer as the greatest tool to reduce my mismatch. Because I always like to say, it's not my cerebral palsy that holds me back, rather the environment that can support my cerebral palsy, whether it can or not, that holds me back. And, um, Technology was always that great level set to really reduce that mismatch that I was experiencing that really allowed me to use technology and finding new ways of thinking to navigate the world. The same kind of thought process I had to navigate a world that wasn't ready for somebody as cerebral palsy, that I got to really help organizations find new products and new ways to delivering products that will help them stay relevant and not get caught up in the status quo. So I worked at a number of tech companies from startup to scale up. Um, and then I came to the bank to lead their agile initiative, which was a great opportunity to kick off all the digital factories. And then later working with Scotia as a whole to how do we stay aligned and move quicker for more forward? And then it was through there that I actually, you would have thought I'd been focusing on accessibility earlier, but it wasn't until Scotia that really opened my eyes to looking at ways to leverage what I learned and how to use technology or that mind space of creative thinking to better other people like me to be able to have the life like I've had. So it's interesting you covered a lot of ground there, but you, you spoke almost right away about the impact of tech that technology had on you as as you were growing up and in, I guess, kind of pointing you in a certain direction 
um, professionally. What did that look like then? I guess are we talking about talking about the eighties or the nineties? Uh, what, what did it mean? From what did the technology mean, and how? What new things did it open up for you at that time? You're right. You're, you're right. You're from eighties and nineties, right? I think the biggest differentiator, Stephen, was moving from having to do everything on paper, meaning. It was unforgiving, right? If you made a mistake, you had to use liquid paper. And if you have a tremor in your hands, liquid paper just makes it look like art by the time you're done. So being able to do it digitally made the ability to create more humane, meaning I could write a draft and revise it, revise it, revise it. Nothing was permanent as it was on paper. So it really allowed me to get ideas out without reducing the effort to having to retype it all over again if I made a mistake or changed my mind. So the digital aspect of making something less permanent made it more human and more effortlessly for me to create. Right. And did did learning those types of skills, I guess, sort of level the playing field for you in some respects in ter- in terms of like your career because you were able to do things that maybe might have been difficult or impossible for somebody in your position 20 years before. How did your early career go in that respect? Well, well let's bring it back to grade school, right? Like you remember back in the 80s, how many people had access to computers, right? That was the biggest barrier because I saw a computer early on. I was like any little nerdy kid watching TV shows on computers saying, wow, that could be really helpful. And getting access to a computer early, I got to learn things at the age of eight that most people in my age group didn't get exposed to till they were in the 20s. And it wasn't like I was forward thinking and innovative. I had to find a tool that was going to help me escape where other people with disabilities generations prior didn't have access to do something different. So because it was a tool of a necessity for me, it really forced me, I guess, to learn to have to use it to be able to get to where I wanted to just to meet my peers that didn't have to leverage technology to do that same path. But my only way to get there was through technology. And so that's what then you sort of devoted yourself to professionally in in your career at various startups and uh, at various companies in the early going. Then, then at the bank where you became a an expert, a well known expert in agile. Which, if you will forgive me, give me give me a thirty second explanation of what agile is. What Agile is, is it gives you an ability to start doing and applying the learning by inspecting and adapting. If you use a very systematic approach to just continually inspect and adapt, where if you think about what I said earlier about growing up with a disability, I can do the things you could, Stephen, so I had to inspect and adapt to find new ways to do something. Before Agile, we assumed we had to figure everything out front before building it. Now we really use a process where we think about it, 
build it and learn from it and iterate to make it better as we go. So when I first graduated university, I was a programmer. And then I learned very quickly that I was a better product manager than I ever would be an engineer because I understood the big picture and I loved the why. And that's what led me into product management. And then when I got to see Agile come out to find the same way to build software was the same way I used to get to where I am. I really gravitated it and it helped me get product to market quicker. And for a good 12 years of my career, I was the change agent that was bringing this new way of, of delivering and, and dealing with complexity and unknowing in a field that was something that was quite natural to me. So that's how I got involved in Agile and that was how my career progressed throughout. Without really thinking about accessibility too much, that was all I would think about it instead of going, no, it's got to go beyond that. It's got to be a great user experience for people with disabilities. And so now you're putting that into practice at Microsoft, but did you start working in that area at Scotiabank? Were you thinking about the way the bank could serve uh, different types of customers better through more accessible uh, technology? Kind of, but it was meeting Monica Ackerman. Um, I came in, I was doing great talks on agile technology and innovation. And she goes, have you ever thought about doing talks on accessibility and what it means for people with disabilities? And I was like, at the time, no, no, that'd be too convenient, the guy in the wheelchair talking about accessibility. And her only response was, that's too bad because so many people could be helped by sharing your view and how it's helped you and your thinking on how to make it better. And that's all she said. She just dropped that little nudge, but it was one of those things that haunted you for a while, right? Of, yeah, why don't you? What have you been thinking about? And this year when I turned 50, looking back on my career and, you know, because when you're younger, you're always saying, uh, Stephen, what do you want to be when you grow up? At 50, when you know you're on borrowed time, you start thinking about how do I want to leave this world when I'm no longer here? So that's when I pivoted my career to join Microsoft to really dive into creating accessibility and technology and products, not only to enable disabled people, Stephen, because what I keep telling people is we're all going to be disabled someday. Just some of us beat you to it. So when you're designing for someone like me today, we're actually designing and building for your future self. So I think it's a way of technology being there, ready for when people need it, whenever they're eventually going to need it. And I believe Microsoft is the right platform that's going to have the right technology when everybody needs it to be able to keep them empowered to achieve more. Have you seen over the course of the pandemic, whether the pandemic itself and the, everything that it has changed and what it has done to the way we live our lives, has that accelerated progress towards those types of accommodations or has it delayed it uh, because, because our efforts are elsewhere? Has there been an impact of the pandemic on the way people think about disability and, and accessibility and accommodation? That's a great question, Stephen. Um... I believe it's actually sped it up. 
think about when the pandemic first hit. For everybody else that never had a disability or a challenge that they had to overcome, for the first time in their life, they've experienced a mismatch in the way they live. The way they used to go shopping changed. The way they used to connect to loved ones changed. The way they even did banking changed that they had to find new ways to minimize that mismatch. So it caused an acceleration for those companies that wanted to transform digitally. They just did. They needed to do out of necessity. If we look at video calls, right, if we think about what the state of Zoom and Microsoft Teams were a year and a half ago, it was nowhere nearly as robust and built out as it was today. And it was through the need of having to resolve mismatches. So my hope is everybody that had to feel that uncomfortableness, the pain of, wait a minute, I can't do things like others or like I even used to. And they had to have that patience and forgiveness and empathy to find new ways to do things. I hope they remember that coming out of the pandemic because right now we made where now we can get doctor appointments online. We can even see our doctor on a video call where before they would say, nope, nope, got to be here in person. So I think as we come out of the pandemic, I would like us to not go how we were, not be how we've been, but let's encourage ourselves or challenge ourselves to be this new hybrid way of living and flexibility that allows service and uniqueness and diversity of choice remain as we progress out of this. Because, you know, the pandemic has forced us to accelerate through it, but we should not be quickly to run away from it when it's no longer around. Right. So those are some of the, I guess, both technology effects and also how this change of circumstances has changed some minds. But more generally, over the course of your sort of working life, how much change have you seen in attitudes around the way people think about hiring disabled people, making sure that they're given the opportunities to succeed in the workplace from the time of your first job until now, I'm guessing, I'm hoping that there is a significant difference in, in the way people approach those questions. I think it's gotten better where I used to be the only unicorn and maybe it was because I was privileged. I got to go through university and get all those things, but I was always the unique person, right? I never self-disclosed because there wasn't such a thing. Diversity and inclusion wasn't a thing. Um, I had to hope there was an accessible bathroom and a lot of times they weren't. And was that a factor of me not getting the job or not? I'll never know. Nobody will ever admit or say that. But I do think now we came in a world where we're starting to see diversity and inclusion to not only mean equity, not only be about equity, but being a competitive advantage to be cognitive diverse, right? To get different perspectives, different backgrounds, different ways of thinking. So that way, as we're creating global products, 
The people that build our products should be a reflection of those that use our products. So if we're trying to create global things, we need that multiple cognitive diversity that's gonna be hugely successful. Where I think it still needs to improve is, I think we do a good job of recruiting, could be better, everything could be better. We do a good job on onboarding, but that's when we stop. What are we doing to invest into people with disabilities to grow them as they progress through their career? What I mean is, they move into a role where they gotta travel. Have we thought about the travel policies of the organization? where they can bring a helper? What about the times they need to be with a helper? Do we schedule meetings over their time? So I think there's a lot of areas to keep. I think inclusion and inclusion has to be continuous. We can't begin and end it on the onboarding experience. And I don't think we do enough today on the onboarding experience. I've been hired on many teams. I haven't always felt that I belong to every team I've been hired on. And the difference is the inclusion from day one all the way to my last day. I guess that uh, what you're talking about is what maybe these days would be called allyship, which there's an awful lot of talk about in corporate and, and other circles about, I guess, people with maybe with more privilege becoming allies for those with less or those with other types of challenges. What do you, what do you think allyship means in the context of disability? The important thing is, is get to know the individual, get to know when they need help or when they're asking for help to be that ally and knowing when to give them agency to be their own voice and their own unique voice. Cause I've had people from one extreme that obviously he needs a ramp. You know, this is discrimination. Bring it all down. And you're like, whoa, whoa, let's stop here. That doesn't feel where my feeling is. Um, and then it takes away my ability to have a voice. So I think to be an ally, before you want to be an ally, get to know the person or the group you're trying to support. But don't make it about the person. Make it about systemic change and the process. Because even if you solve it for the person, it doesn't mean you're solving it for everybody. So maybe make sure you're taking a holistic approach to the ally. Work with the person to see what kind of support. Maybe they need you to be the voice, but find out if they want that or if they welcome that. And then by all means, do it and do it consistently. Not, you know, when it's a convenient time to to maybe make you look good, but to move the cause in general. Um, but to me, allyship is knowing why you're doing it and not tied to the person, but the general cause in general. Okay, I think we're getting close to the end, but I heard this story, but I wanted you to, I wanted you to tell it about recently you, uh, you completed the Terry Fox run which uh, is no small feat. Um, can you maybe just describe why you wanted to do that and then what it was like to, to actually get yourself to the point where you could? Well, it was interesting. I think during um, the pandemic, a lot of us were like reflection on what is a life, what is it to be in that? Um, and uh, I let myself get out of shape, right? 
I don't want to make many excuses. I just did. I put on 60 plus pounds. And so what I wanted to do was to get in better condition. So whatever years I have left, I can live my best quality of life. Um, but Terry Fox has always been a hero of mine because of what he did in the 80s to go across Canada to raise money before social media to get awareness. Um, so I decided, you know what, I want to raise money for the Terry Fox Walk. And immediately people asked me, whoa, Dave, why, why wouldn't you do it for cerebral palsy? And I said, that's simple. I think as a human, I need to put my own hardship aside to focus on others. So if I can be diversity and purpose in helping another group, then I make inclusion hopeful, I make hope inclusive for all. So just like I did this for Terry Fox, I was hoping somebody else would do something with cerebral palsy. Because as a society, I think if we can all take a turn to not do something immediately for ourselves and for someone else, and then that gets reciprocated and that gets reciprocated, now we're truly talking about an inclusive and diverse world. I always laugh. We always say diversity and inclusion, but until inclusion happens where you feel safe, diversity will always be an aspiration. First, you got to make me feel safe before you allow uniqueness in. And I think too many organizations put the D in front of the I where we should put the I in front of the D. That's very well said. Um, I do just want to ask you specifically, though, normally you use a wheelchair. You did this walk. How far did you walk? How much did you have to train? How long did it take you? It took me about 17 months to get into shape. I lost 60 plus pounds down to 10.8% body fat. I started biking 80 minutes in the morning, another 40 minutes at night, meeting with a physiotherapist twice a week during the week to get my balance up and doing weight training on the weekend. And of course, I had to change my diet and not eat things that I enjoyed eating um, to do it. It was a complete lifestyle change. But the five kilometer walk took me four hours and 15 minutes. I did the walk, I think it was the end of September. The bruises on my toes are just starting to heal now. But luckily I could resume workouts three days after because I'm not gonna give this up, right? I got into shape. I've been living my best life. I'm being able to help support others. It's been truly great. Um, but it was well worth it. And the beauty of doing the walk, I had so many loved ones around me. We're all vax masked, so nobody worry about that. But it was just so great to be able to achieve something in front of so many people that have been with you throughout different parts of your life that it wasn't that I did it, it was we did it. And that made the day all magical. Well, that's a, that's a great story. Thank you for telling it, David. And thanks so much for joining us today on Perspectives. It was a, it was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. And uh, all my love to my Scotia friends. Uh, I'm on Microsoft now, but you never forget where home is. And uh, 
Thanks to everyone that still supports me today. You bet. Well, thanks again, David. I've been speaking to David Dane. He is the Director of Accessibility at Microsoft. You've been listening to the Perspectives Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please follow us on whatever podcast platform you normally use. Thanks a lot. Take care. Please see the Scotiabank website for legal disclaimers.